You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this episode, we are delighted to bring you a conversation with Tomas Hendrik Ilves, former president of Estonia, on Russia's conflict in Ukraine. Aspie's executive director, Justin Bassi, asks Tomas about Western and NATO unity in support of Ukraine and the implications of the war for democracies and global security including in the Indo-Pacific. They also discuss cyber challenges, lessons to be learned from the war, and the long-term trajectory of the conflict. Former Estonian President Thomas Hendrik Ilves, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute podcast. Let's dive straight in. The Russian war is now into its fifth month. This week, we've seen the G7 and the NATO summit, both dominated by the Russian war, and by statements of solidarity for Ukraine and for increasing NATO membership to Sweden and Finland. Can we start with whether you are positive about continued Western NATO unity in relation to military, humanitarian and economic support for Ukraine on Russian sanctions and the transition away from Russian energy sources? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a tough one. That's a big one. I would, I would say that basically as long as... Um, the Russians keep doing horrible things. Their uh, brutality is what binds the West. Had they not pursued a policy of sheer jingoistic, imperialist brutality, I, the mercantilist uh, impulses, uh, the Putin first impulses of uh, a number of countries in Western Europe would have uh, come to dominate. I mean, they're still they're still there. They're still pushing. Uh, you can see that, um, especially in Germany, you see uh, a fair bit of reluctance to to get serious about the defense or about uh, assisting Ukraine, which is quite disturbing, I would say, given that uh, Germany has been a recipient of the primary recipient of Western. Solidarity uh, beginning in 1945, basically, and uh, also the Merlin airlift, but then especially under the NATO umbrella. So I think that, I mean, that's kind of a, that's a separate issue, but nonetheless, uh, it's odd to see that the solidarity of the of the West at this point, I think, is far stronger than it was initially, precisely because there has been no effort on the part of Russia to alter its behavior, but rather to double down and make even more absurd claims, undercutting those who have been consistently and persistently pushing for whatever dialogue, the word dialogue means in this case. But nonetheless, it has made it untenable for, uh, for those who even were saying, well, Let's talk to Putin. Let's talk to Putin. There is something fundamental going on here, which is that, I mean, and what is worrisome, I mean, even with the talk about, well, we should talk to Putin, is that there is an implicit acceptance of aggression as acceptable. It has been defined as illegal since 1945 in this part of the world. It was not only the UN charter, but uh, followed up with the... uh, with the OSC or at that time CSCE agreement, Helsinki 
Agreement in 1975, followed by the Paris Charter in 1990, and specifically in the case of uh, Ukraine by the Budapest Memorandum. Uh, all of this, I mean, basically we have codified since 1945 that aggression, the changing of borders through use of force or threat of use of force is the ultimate crime uh, in international law. But here it is. And then you see countries in the West that themselves were victims of aggression of that type in 1939, 1940, going along with that, with the idea that, well, we should talk we should basically reward the aggressor by having having a dialogue about what's his and what's ours and so forth. So, uh, as I said, I, I right now I feel strong. I feel that the uh, the solidarity is stronger than it has been, and the sense of purpose is greater than it has been. But Vladimir Putin's uh, and his army's brutality has played no small role in cementing that uh, that cohesion. Yes, completely agree. And the uh, you refer to the solidarity being stronger now and due to the Russian behavior, there's also no doubt that Ukraine itself has very effectively framed the war as one that goes well beyond a regional conflict with profound consequences for the future of democracies and the international rules-based order as a whole. What are your thoughts on what is at stake here, whether it be for Ukraine, for democracies and for global security as a whole? Well, uh, no, basically, first and foremost, the, the idea that there are international rules of behavior and that aggression will not be rewarded. I mean, of course, we have seen aggression rewarded since the, it was formulated in 1945 in the UN Charter, but nonetheless, not on such a grand scale. And so it's very much in, the, in our interest that, um, that aggression be thwarted here. There is the sort of more local, regional dimension um, that we see coming to the fore, which I guess uh, seems to bother us a, a lot of country, countries in the region as well, which has to do with uh, this idea of retaking what Russia once had as a justification, which has now been extended by Putin to all kinds of imaginary places that they once had. But I mean, this is as a a reason to bear our justification for aggression is that, well, we once owned it. If you look at the history of Europe, everybody was once or another time was a part of some other country. And it gets pretty weird, absurd if you read uh, Norman Davies' Vanished Kingdoms, where you see how, how contingent it all is that uh, states that once uh, a thousand years ago looked rather formidable have, you know, no one's even heard of them anymore. So, uh, I mean, this, as any kind of principle, should be extremely alarming to all of us. And, um, and I, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I, in fact, in, in Asia, there is that uh, same trend uh, occasionally visible in China. I recall reading about 10 years ago how some Kazakhs were extremely worried because the Chinese claimed they had found Han artifacts somewhere in Kazakhstan, getting worried that this this too would be justification for an incursion by China because they have the same uh, sort of concept of where we once were is actually ours. So uh, anyway, I mean, I, I think we have to uh, we have to be quite wary of these new trends and and always the. Uh, 
the willingness of fuzzy-headed people in uh, liberal democracies to actually accept argumentation of this type. It definitely has shown that uh, a regional war or conflict has global impact. So uh, the Indo-Pacific is definitely watching, looking to learn from what is going on. As part of that, it, it was uh, interesting and, of course, a positive that Australia, along with New Zealand, South Korea and Japan, were invited to participate in the NATO summit this week. What's your view on that? Was that to show that NATO has interests in the Indo-Pacific or was it to ensure the Russian war is viewed as global and not just European or is it a bit of both? Well, I think both of those together plus, uh, I mean, and I would hope a third thing, but the two, yes, obviously, and especially when you get both Russia and China defining power relationships as uh, East versus West or I mean, we kind of buy into that or accept that because it's basically liberal democracies versus autocracies. Not quite the communist, non-communist division of the Cold War era, but certainly autocratic regimes that um, they, they define themselves by saying we're not the West, but the West defines itself by being, a, by being liberal democracies. And it's, it's, I mean, it's you can always find sort of outliers, certainly. I'm not sure that we would include Hungary in the West as defined by adherence to liberal democracy, but but certainly basic Taiwan, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Australia, all uh, fit into rule of law-based liberal democracies. I mean, if you read Fukuyama's latest book. I mean, basically, it's about America mainly, but everything he says there applies just as much to all of the countries above. And of course, there are other ones too that are not sort of neatly geographically groupable. I mean, I think Uruguay <laughs> pretty much in there, Costa Rica. So I think we will be, and I hope we will be moving more and more towards understanding understanding sort of geopolitical issues, uh, not so much in the sense of geography. And primarily because, I mean, here comes my long disquisition, just so you know, but basically, uh, while obviously the war in Ukraine shows that uh, kinetic war has gone nowhere, uh, I mean, it's still there, bloodshed, people being killed, hand-to-hand combat. But we have since the turn of the millennium seen that there is another form of, of warfare, which is digital or and or cyber. Now, and this means that we have that, um, the, the, the groupings that we have had, which have been always geographical, war has always been a priority, even sounds stupid to say, but geographically based, but it isn't anymore. And in fact, um, you know, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization it's called the North Atlantic, not because everyone is so wonderful in the North Atlantic, but rather it has to do with bomber range, fighter refueling issues, tank logistics, troop movements, troop transport, all those things. Japan and Australia are not in NATO because they're different, have different values. And then there's because you're not here. Now, as we move into cyber for, as a weapon, no doubt it can be used and has been used as a weapon. In fact, I have argued that the first time cyber ever really 
fit von Clausewitz's definition of war as a continuation of policy by other means was 2007, when I was in office, by the way, when Russia launched a massive distributed denial of service attack on my series of DDoS attacks on my country and basically at the time shut it down. So uh, my point is that in the future, we will, we perforce, we'll have to look at alliances in the non-kinetic spheres and obviously you really want to be secure and save and, and protect liberal democracies, especially under conditions of freedom of speech, which we enjoy and the adversaries do not espouse, that we need to make our alliances uh, go far beyond simple geography. So to go back to the original question, I don't know what they discussed there, but I would certainly hope that when it comes to things such as cyber defense, that we integrate and work closely as possible with our friends and people who think the way we do. And clearly those countries that were invited do think the same way and share the same values that are being opposed by authoritarian regimes, be they Russia or China or Iran and, and their fellow travelers who are not that few. Yeah, you, you, you took us down the cyberspace path. Uh, so let's stay there for a moment. As you said, Estonia came under a DDoS attack in 2007 when you were in office uh, and then really put a lot of time and effort and resources into Estonia's digital security. Do you see that what we've learned since then has helped us in the current conflict with how Ukraine is dealing with cyber and cyber security uh, or are there still lessons that we need to continue to learn? Well, when it comes to cyber, there will always be lessons because it is so constantly changing. But nonetheless, uh, I, one of the things that we have seen a number of articles saying, well, look, it's not turned out, it's turned out not to be so bad. Well, it's turned out not to be so bad because so much effort has been put into mitigating cyber attacks. We have been under, I mean, this is even just locally. Say, oh, see, they're not doing anything. Well, actually, they are. It's just that we put a lot of effort into avoiding these things and to stopping them and to or to make our systems more secure so we haven't been noticed i mean the public does not notice what we are mitigating uh in the case of ukraine 2015 they basically shut down the russians shut down large parts of the country but anyway the point is that ukraine was attacked in 2015 in a i mean big way and one of the worst ransomware attacks we saw, which was in NotPetya, and basically caused Maersk, the world's largest transport logistics company, $300 million in damage that actually began with something that was strictly meant to hurt Ukraine. So we will see more and more of this in the future. And the, But we should also keep in mind the fact that we don't see certain things that doesn't mean it's not happening. It is. And so um, it's more due to the efforts that um, uh, from the various lessons learned that uh, we are successful in preventing them. But here, especially what I, I mean, we need to rethink much of our security thinking when it comes to the digital era that we're in, in that quite clearly 
national borders, which has always been, have always defined the issue of national security, have always been your borders, is that when the, the sort of two main Russian hacking groups, APT28 and APT29, also this fancy bear and cozy bear and all kinds of other names, but anyway, those two, one of which is directly related to GRU, the other one is not clear who it's, I mean, this ad hoc group or whatever. But anyway, they have attacked in the past six years the U.S. Congress, Defense Department, the State Department. They've also attacked the Bundestag in Germany and the German think tanks, and they've attacked the foreign ministries of Netherlands and of Italy, Denmark, and they've even attacked WADA. The World Anti-Doping Agency. I mean, they have they have hacked into or attempted to hack into all of those, and they are identifiable. We don't know who's, what the, who the people are, but we know the group based on their handwriting. Now, I mean, they don't they don't worry about national borders. I mean, cyber doesn't care about national borders. They don't care about national borders. Yet, our cyber defenses we are hung up on the. The etiology of cyber defense has, has come out of espionage because cyber because cyber came out of signal intelligence. And I mean, even what you're in and we're not uh, for the five eyes is based on, well, we can share a little bit of the stuff we're listening in on, right? And that's how, what five eyes is based on. Now, now we have you know, the entire world is, is facing cyber issues and we have all of we have the nsa and the ghcq and those people are all talk to each other a little bit but really the issues really span across liberal democracies and unless we start really dealing with this in a in an alliance-based way we will be constantly rediscovering things i mean i went in 2010 when i was still in office and we had a we discovered a worm in our military network, a Russian worm. And um, so being good little, you know, good little NATO allies, we went and said, hi, look what we discovered in our military network. And the answer from NATO at that time was, oh, you too. That is not the answer you sh NATO should be giving. It is, it, we're not, we're not, <laughs> I don't know what. This is not an Easter egg hunt, you know? I mean, this is basically when when someone finds something, then everyone in NATO should find out about it and immediately. And But it shouldn't just be NATO. It should be all of those countries that could be affected by it because Australia could be just as affected by a Russian worm in its military network as we are. When we when we no longer have these uh, geographical constraints, it doesn't matter. Uh, and so we need to work together. It's a tough thing to cross, but we need to get there because the bad guys don't care about our national borders. That's, uh, that's very, very true. Uh, and they're, uh, they, their use of the same technology we use, they don't have the same ethics or standards that we do. So it's a, it's a persistent threat. And so therefore, that we have to counter it persistently. You have mentioned that Estonia and uh, other states have been suffering at the hands of Russia, uh, including through cyber attacks for some years now. We've seen some of the strongest support for Ukraine and against Russian actions coming from the Baltic states. You've spoken about Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia having long warned the world about Putin's Russia and said the invasion was a we told you so moment. 
Why do you think it took the invasion and a war for many other countries to act? Well, we didn't matter. What we said didn't matter. It was ignored, patronized, written roughshod over, for one. And uh, two, there's so much money to be made there. I mean, basically, the German economy uh, thrived on cheap Russian energy, conveniently overlooking all kinds of uh, moral lapses on the part of uh, part of in democracy. And uh, part of that was to ignore what Central and Eastern Europe was saying, not just the Baltic countries, but Poland and the Czechs and uh, the Slovaks. Uh, I mean... I mean, I often got the feeling that it was like, thank God the wall fell, but unfortunately the Zwischenländer or the uh, the lands in between are such a thorn in preventing our uh, wonderful ties with the Russians whom we understand so well. But in any case, uh, Eastern Europe has been, or Central and Eastern Europe has been, uh, warning about this for a long time, and we have been not only ignored, but patronized and sort of brushed off. And it really did, I mean, look, it, it took the invasion. I mean, we were poo-pooed about any possibility of invasion as well as late as the 23rd of February. The 24th, things changed. So there's a good piece by Tobias Bunde that just came out which I, I tweeted yesterday, on Germany, and I would very much recommend reading that to understand where Germany went wrong or how it went wrong since the fall of the walls. I think that's a very good piece that actually looks analytically at the issue rather than emotionally, as the Germans very often have in the past four months, simply because it's a tough position to say, actually, we, we who were the moral superpower when it came to all things because of our Vergangenheitsbewältigung or dealing with the past. And we don't we are a pacifist nation. We'll make sure that Aspie retweets that Thomas so that any Australians who are not already following you have the opportunity to read it. Apart from countries who have uh, as you say patronized you o- over the years in terms of your warnings, there are also a group of countries who claim that they want to be non-aligned or neutral. Do you have any message for them? Well, I don't know. I mean, when we're talking about economic systems and whether you want to be a capitalist or a Marxist country, that kind of makes sense. I mean, we want to be non-aligned when it comes to fundamental rights and freedoms. Or we want to be non-aligned when it comes to rule of law. I mean, well, okay, if you don't... If you're neutral with respect to rule of law, saying, wow, we can have, I mean, <laughs> well, this thing is not like, oh, I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Uh, I mean, certainly that uh, being uh, being neutral with regard to rule of law certainly will not do well for your economies. I mean, basically, who wants to invest in a country that says, well, you know, I mean, rule of law is nice, but on the other hand, you know, we can bend the, bend the laws when we want to. So I, it doesn't it the it doesn't map one to one from sort of the the Cold War economic distinction, which really sort of you know ownership of means of production, although that kind of Marxist jargon that actually applied maybe, and the Leninist kind of uh, model of colonialism, 
is actually, I think, the weak point that we want to be. We we don't we are not alone. In fact, we are looking at as brutal an imperialist colonialist war as there possibly could be right now in Ukraine. Now, to be a former colony of anyone, I mean, I don't see how you can be a former colony and and say we're going to be neutral with respect to an imperialist, brutal imperialist colonialist war that probably looks more like you know the German extinction of the. Uh, Harari in Sudwest Africa in the in the beginning of the 20th century, just killing people, uh, for, uh, just to get rid of them. That is the model that we see in, uh, in in Ukraine today. Now, to be a former colony uh, and say, "Oh well, we're going to be neutral," and that certainly then takes away any kind of argumentation you can have as a or suffered under colonialism. The more I think about it, I think that's where we're, you're going to have to basically face. Are we are we going to be able to continue to ask for aid and and for excuses because of the bad colonial past of Europe um, if we don't side with Ukraine in this? Very well said. Uh, I think there's absolute proof that silence and inaction when there are breaches of, as you say, the rules uh, is not the way to go. It only creates more instability and encourages an authoritarian regime to continue. Uh, and unfortunately, it then takes a war for any action to commence. So the time to act is when you are identifying the rules being breached and, and ensure that there is deterrence for further rule breaches or enforcement of where that non-compliance occurs. Putin's plans for Russia to send nuclear-capable missile systems to Belarus have been widely reported. Throughout the war, Putin has from time to time made veiled nuclear threats. Do you see this as, a, as genuine or an attempt to deter countries from continuing to supply Ukraine with weapons and other support? I don't know whether he's really sending the weapons, but certainly, I mean, he's tried everything else possible to, to get other countries not to send weapons. I mean, so why not that? I mean, I think, I mean, given everything that Putin has said, then, I mean, I, I mean, what he says for me has zero truth value. If you look at, I mean, the Russians, unfortunately, have completely discredited themselves regarding any kind of truth value to anything, uh, already beginning with shooting down MH17. And from that point on, really, well, I already could go earlier to some of the other things they did in Ukraine before that. But, I mean, basically, no one really takes what, you, what Russia says with, any serious, whatever he says, he says, and we'll wait until our own intelligence tells us that he did something. But certainly what he says he'll, he's doing, there's not, no reason to believe any of it. You mentioned MH17 in 2014. It, it again shows that uh, although Australia is maybe far away from Europe, that security issues affect us wherever we are. It's something that still... Uh, is a uh, uh, an issue of uh, extreme uh, anger, frustration, and emotion for for many Australians, looking to uh, to ensure that, uh, that we can actually have justice for for that uh, shooting down. This week, we have seen NATO's Secretary General Stoltenberg outline NATO's new strategic concept. It reportedly describes Russia as the most significant and direct threat to NATO, but importantly, for the first time describes China as a challenge. 
This comes off the back of the EU referring to China as a systemic rival. Do you agree that it's important for NATO to deal with both Russia as the direct or short-term threat and China as the long-term threat? Someone on the NSC staff said brilliantly, Russia's the hurricane, but China's climate change. I mean, that's basically where we are. Russia is not a long-term, I mean, Russia is a nuisance factor. I mean, of course, if you're its next-door neighbor, it's a real nuisance. But it is a nuisance in the sense of they, there is no future for Russia in its current policy. I mean, it just is not, I mean, whatever delusions they have of world domination on their part, which you see every night on their television. Uh, I mean, even after the Ukrainian war, there was an overheard conversation, by the way, a single intelligence conversation between two Russian ambassadors in Africa deciding that where they were going to take their apartments or condos in the United States after they win the war. I mean, this is the kind of, these are, this is the kind of delusional thinking that, yeah. that fires them. But when it comes to a real threat, uh, 140 million people, uh, person, country that has the GDP of Portugal is not a threat to the world. China is not only in terms of population, in terms of economic growth, but also in terms of intellectual capacity, uh, is, a, is a serious, a serious challenger to what hitherto has been the most uh, successful form of system, which is liberal democracy based on free markets. Now, their markets aren't that free, and there's uh, not much in terms of uh, constitutionalism, rule of law, and respect for human rights there, as we all have noted. By uh, sheer dint of power, that makes it a systemic rival for us. And... You know it better than than we, since you have actually felt some of this. Uh, I mean, felt it much more than we have in Europe. But even in Europe, we find China flexing its muscles, and the, certainly the Belt and Road initiatives is something that initially didn't uh, raise any uh, concern, but now is viewed rather suspiciously. I mean, what is it? What's going on? This is, in particular, an area where we need to do to develop stronger ties and solidarity because efforts that we've seen, for example, with uh, with universities in the West, only recently on the part of China, you know, part Confucius Institutes and uh, but other ways as well. I mean, you've been you've been experiencing this far longer than we have. The kind of attempts at suppression of um, academic research that. Russia does with us, you see with China. And then I, it was brought to the fore, I think, uh, about three, four years ago when the CCP was willing to make a big donation to Cambridge University to Sinology, the premier journal of Sinology, on the condition that they eliminate certain articles having to do with Mao's past and with the... Uh, with Tiananmen Square. Now, I mean, the problem is we have a bunch of prostitutes as well, I mean, that are, uh, that are willing to do things such as this. In fact, Cambridge University was willing to take the money, was willing to actually follow through. And we've seen similar tactics employed by various um, sort of reputation washing uh, efforts on the part of Russian oligarchs. 
we can't let ourselves be subverted by being bought. <laughs> I mean, and have our our truth distorted by being bought. But you've experienced it in Australia. We've seen it here. The kind of worrisome thing is, um, you know, when you see a country like our neighbor, Lithuania, uh, strengthening yeah. its ties with Taiwan, you see then extreme pressure brought to bear on Lithuania. But then you see German companies threatening Lithuania because they say, well, you're going to threaten our trade relations with China. I mean, no, uh, this is not. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, whether it be individuals, business people, uh, politicians or the academic sector, we've seen that money talks. We've definitely seen that transparency is an excellent way to pour sunlight on those connections uh, and to deter such activity. Uh, it's definitely, uh, it could be a, a podcast all in itself to us, uh, that topic, but uh, just to uh, wrap up on the on the war before letting you go, can I ask you to project forward, what do you see as the longer term trajectory of the war? Are you concerned that NATO states and others currently supporting Ukraine could fatigue? as domestic populations become more frustrated with food and energy prices? The fatigue thing, I think, is overdone. You might, you might see politicians appeal to fatigue as a reason to disengage for their own reasons. Uh, but certainly, I mean, if you look at popular opinion across Europe, it's way ahead of, uh, at least in Western Europe, it's way ahead of their governments. Uh, popular opinion is far more concerned by the atrocities they seem than, than the politicians who would rather not discuss these things because they are, I mean, it's bad, you know, bad for their economies, right? So, so I don't see fatigue as an issue. You know, I'm not a military expert, so I, what, can I, what can I say? What I do see politically is that as a war of attrition, time is on the side of the Ukrainians uh, because when you're fighting for your life and your wife and your land and you know that if the other guy wins, you will be butchered, then your wife raped, you fight. And so even if it means, you know, if attrition means everyone sort of are decimated, that's what that's the result. Whereas the other side, I mean, they're just. They don't have the, uh, there is no will there to fight in that sense. I mean, people are just being paid money to fight and uh, being thrown in, in as cannon fodder. And in the long term of that, unless they have massive superiority in weaponry, which they don't anymore, they're in the position of Jim Morrison of the Doors. Uh, they got the guns, we got the numbers. Um, well, right now, in fact, the... Uh, the Russians have the numbers still, but uh, the Ukrainians are beginning to have the guns. And that was certainly an unexpected result, I think, when they did their calculations. And when you feel, I mean, they're, the war of attrition is not going well for their military brass since we're into the third or fourth generation of, uh, of military leadership in Ukraine in four months. I mean, it's like just a month ago, when we're talking about the butcher of Syria, Dvornikov, taking over, and now Dvornikov has disappeared. I mean, so they're going through, the, they're churning through their generals as well quickly. Uh, I think in that with that kind of war, it'll be uh, the fight in the Donbass will be long and nasty, but the Ukrainians will not give up. 
that's just it's quite clear and uh, you know i've i i took in some ukrainian refugees here in my my house and these people are not giving up i mean it's they're not giving up so so I don't see this um, going in a, in, a, in, a, in any serious way toward a, um, a victory on one side or the other, but I don't see this, and I don't see this ending in any time soon until, aside from the potential collapse of the Russians, where at some point they just all run away. Ukraine not giving up is uh, an excellent way to, uh, to to finish our time. You, you mentioned uh, the Doors song. Uh, you've uh, it's. Uh, been an absolute pleasure to have you, uh, former Estonian President Thomas Hendrik Ilves, on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's podcast, which is called Policy Guns and Money, uh, after uh, another song. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to having you back again, uh, and we'll make sure that we continue to retweet you so that Australians can continue to read what you consider most important. Thanks very much. Thank you. I should add that you didn't you have the other uh, the second line from that too send lawyers guns and money dad get me out of this unfortunately there is no dad in the world these days very well said <laughs> that's all we have time for this week on policy guns and money we look forward to bringing you another episode soon thanks for listening